A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. But this is not just another episode, this is... A part four in our ongoing series, uh, hopefully the last one, we'll see how it goes along. This might be the finale, and um, if we get everything done, if not, we'll just go for part five soon. And the series is, of course, World War One and the Jews. And last time we left off with the um, three major events that took place in the year 1917, the main one being the Russian Revolution, especially the second one, the Bolshevik Revolution. The second event was uh, the United States Army's entry into the war. And the third one was the Balfour Declaration. I'll elaborate on those three and try to bring it all together to the end of the war. So we started talking about the Russian Revolution and the Jewish political parties organizing, including the religious um, a Jewish party called Achdus, and how that all came to an end with the Second Revolution, the Bolsheviks, and how they first, you know, did away with democracy and ended the war on the Eastern Front with the Treaty of Brest-Litvask, and then the entire former Russian Empire plunges into civil war. So what the Russian Revolution uh, brings in its wake is a total transformation of Jewish life in the Russian Empire. Um, it it uh, let's talk about two aspects of it. First, the first immediate uh, immediate thing that happens is that officially the Russian Revolution brings an end to all the repressive measures of the of the Tsar of the Tsar Nikolai the the second Tsar Nikolai. And and uh, the Romanovs in general, the whole regime, which was very anti-Jewish, like I said last time, there's no more pale of settlement. Jews can live wherever they want. They can pursue higher education. They can go to university. They can completely assimilate into Russia and the Russian people and whatever they want. Now, as far as a lot of Jews were concerned in the Russian Empire, that was wonderful. And they took... They took that opportunity and they joined the Communist Party in droves. 
and this was good news. They, anti-Semitism seemed to have been coming to an end. To a certain extent, um, there was a lot of anti-religious uh, sentiment in Russia, and that the you know they crushed all uh, Jewish religious institutions, shuls, mikvahs, yeshivas, chasidus, Jewish uh, cultural and political institutions. Uh, Zionism was illegal and banned, although Yiddish culture did flourish in the early years. That they did support as long as they towed the party line. Yiddish as a language and as a culture and as literature and theater and everything else was um, looked positively uh, upon in the early years of the regime, before the purges in the 1930s. And and the Jews across Russia, they seem to be paradise. They seem to be a utopia that that even though they're doing away with the Jewish religion, but... You know, maybe the Jewish religion is something that that it's okay to be doing away with. We could become full-fledged Russians and assimilation becomes rampant. And even intermarriage to a certain extent. Um, in fact, in the 1920s and 30s, Russia and the Soviet Union became a place of major assimilation and an incredible high rate of intermarriage and integration into Russian life and culture and Soviet life and culture that was... Uh, widespread and quite rapid, actually. And what stopped it was two things. Number one, the purges, uh, Stalin, uh, Stalin's purges, and especially the post-war Stalin, where he became almost openly anti-Semitic, and the doctor's plot, and he killed Jewish writers, and he put in pretty much an end to Yiddish uh, culture, which was the last openly Jewish thing uh, existing in Russia at that time. And also the Holocaust, which eventually came to Russian Jewry, and that made a divide between uh, Russian Jews and regular Russians. But that we're jumping ahead. That's already relevant to after way after World War One. But uh, the point is, is that many Jews in the Russian former Russian Empire in the, in the now Soviet Union joined the ranks of the Communist Party. There was a Jewish division within the Communist Party, the Yevsektsia which which uh, has a special place in Jewish history and their role in destroying Jewish religious life and traditional life across the Russian Empire. Very often it was this Jewish division of the Communist Party that was the ones who closed the shuls and arrested rabbis and closed yeshivas and Hasidic courts and other places because they were, you know, they truly believed in the new era of uh, of the, of communism of the Soviet Union of the atheist aspect of communism and that uh, the way that um, that religion is a threat it's a holdover from the capitalism from the class system and we have to do away with by the way other religions suffered also uh, many churches were closed torched uh, priests were arrested and tortured and very often sent to Siberia or killed. So it was an anti-religion uh, thing that took place in in communist Russia at the time. It wasn't specifically targeting the Jews per se. Um, many of the leading uh, communists were Jews. This also came back to haunt them later on when there became, a, it was almost a slogan, Judeo-Communisto, a Jew is a communist, a Jewish Bolshevik, it became part of Nazi propaganda later and Ukrainian nationalism and a lot of other things. In Poland there was prevalent also that image. But um, there happened to have been 
several prominent Jews in in Lenin's inner circle, um, the lo- longest surviving old Bolshevik was a fellow by the name of Lazar Kaganovich, who lived long enough. Old Bolshevik means he was an original Bolshevik, was part of the revolution, was part of Lenin's inner circle, survived Stalin and his purges incredibly, and lived long enough almost to see the collapse of the Soviet Union. He died a couple of months before the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. He was well into his 90s at the time, um, the, the longest surviving uh, old Bolshevik, and he was Jewish. I mean, you can't, you can't make up a name like that, Lazar Kaganovich, and he was Jewish. And more famously, Leon Trotsky, who was born uh, Lev, or label, I think Lev Davidovich Brunstein, uh, from a little town, I believe, near Grodna, if I'm not mistaken. I should have looked that up too. And he's he's also Jewish. He he forms the Red Army. He run. He he instigated the revolution. He masterminded it. He was a brilliant uh, man, and uh, he had a fallout with Stalin, and that that was his ending. He left Russia, and eventually Stalin's henchmen caught up with him in Mexico in 1940 and was assassinated. But um, but Leon Trotsky was also Jewish, and there were many many others at the at lower levels also at the uh, at the local level. And they embraced uh, the one who formed the Soviet Air Force, who was killed by Stalin during the purges. Forgot his name. He was a Jew also. And there, are, of course, there are many, many more examples in the arts and academia and, and other, in other uh, fields in the early Soviet Union. So it was a place that they that officially anti-Semitism as against the Jewish people per se uh, came to an end. But on the other hand, like I said, there there was this. Uh, there was this uh, anti-religious uh, hold that took place, but that took took uh, took a back burner to what was the immediate concern. It was right after the revolution, what broke out was this vicious civil war. So while World War One is still raging everywhere else in Europe, Lenin quickly ends the World War One on the Eastern Front, and he goes to the business of fighting the White Russians. And this was a civil war in Russia between the Red Russians, which was the eventually the Red Army, the, the Communists, um, led by Lenin and Trotsky, and and the White Russians, which were former Tsarist officers loyal to the Tsar. By the way, they were supported by Americans, by the United States government even for a time, the British, because the Tsar was an ally. The Tsar was an ally in World War One, and, and everyone in the West was also anti-communism. So the White Russians were someone to be supported, and even on the other side of Russia, in fact, in the, in the on its on the Pacific end of Russia, near Vladivostok on the coast off of Japan, so there actually landed units from the British and American armies to support the White uh, Russian forces. Something also that's uh, not as well known, and the civil war rages across Russia for quite a few years, for close to six years, and only in 1923 does it really die down. Um, it has its ups and downs, and of course the Reds win the war, many Tsarist uh, officers uh, escape to Paris. Paris becomes a revolutionary hotbed during the interwar period of all kinds of former uh, Russians and Poles and from everywhere else in Europe, Hungarians, Germans, 
A lot of people find refuge in Paris, communist revolutionaries, czar supporters. There even was a, a joke that they used to say about, it could be it was even true, I don't know, about how uh, czarist officers in the army were very often from a Russian aristocratic uh very important aristocracy, the Russian aristocracy background. They had titles, and here they were paupers, far away from their estates, far away from their prestige, stuck in Paris, and very often they would even become taxi drivers in Paris during the interwar period. And that's kind of depressing. That's a real downer after what they, where they had been beforehand. So the, the way the story goes is that there were, they formed a club in some back street in, in Paris where they would come at night to gather like a social fraternity and they would don their uniform, uh, the former uniforms of imperialist Russia and they would salute each other and address each other by the correct titles and this way they would remind each other of the good old days when the Tsar was still in charge in Russia and they were part of the Russian aristocracy and officers in the army. So in any event, this this uh, civil war is never good for a country, both economically and the loss of life, and the Jews suffered particularly hard. First of all, the battlefields were very often in their towns. Second of all, both the Reds and the Whites accused the Jews of being on the other side, and very often Jews were caught in the middle. Very often uh, they were they took either side would vent out on the Jewish communities. Um, the Reds would could accuse them of being capitalists and businessmen and supporting the Whites. The Whites didn't need any excuse to persecute the Jews because they were loyal to the Tsar, and that was always the policy to be anti the Jews in Russia. And it was a bloodbath. Uh, literally, the loss of life and home and wealth of the Jews of Russia because, as directly because of the Civil War, it cannot be uh, overestimated. Tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives were lost. Towns were burned, destroyed, pillage, pillaging, uh, outright robbery, an absolute destruction of Jewish life. Much, much more than World War I caused was caused by the Russian Civil War to the Jews of the former Russian Empire. It became an untenable situation, and that instigated a massive immigration west, emigration west, and uh, the the early 1920s, before the United States Congress changed the law, the Johnson-Reed Act in 1925, but the first couple of years saw um, levels of immigration to the United States from Russia that that almost surpassed the pre-World War I uh, period of time. The 1922-1923, there was just a massive immigration, and not only to the United States, but also to Poland, to, which is now a, a new republic, which was now, you know, it was a somewhat democratic republic um, and, and allowed Jewish immigration, and also to other parts of the West. Uh, many Jews, many Russian Jews settled in Germany. There was all these huge communities of Ostjuden. Incredibly enough, it's also something that surprised me when I saw a bunch of years ago this, this uh, statistic, that Berlin, when Hitler came to power in 1933, Berlin had one of the largest Jewish communities in the entire Europe. There was over 200,000 Jews living in Berlin. And many of them were Austudin. They were Eastern European Jews, many of them uh, Russian immigrants. My wife's uh, great-grandparents moved from Russia during that time. 
to Hamburg in Germany, which is even further west. Many moved to England and other places. It was just a complete upheaval of Jewish life uh, in Russia. And um, when, when the, not only that, but if you want to throw into the equation, in the Jewish heartland of the Ukraine, where Jews, the dominant Jewish population of the Russian, Russian Empire was in the Ukraine, the Ukrainian nationalism became a third side of the conflict. In between the white Russians and the red Russians rose Ukrainian nationalists and said, the, the heck with, with the white Russians or the communists. We're going to make Ukraine a, an independent republic. And the Ukrainians were extremely anti-Semitic. And they for sure vented out in terrible ways against the Jewish population in the Ukraine. So you had all three sides taking it out on the Jews in those areas, and they didn't come out uh, well. So it's a, it's a very terrible time. And even after the dust, the, excuse me, the dust finally settles, but communist rule made it almost impossible to live as a religious Jew in Russia. And uh, religious life simply disappears over the next couple of years. And this is the aftermath of World War I, is that the great Jewish community of the Russian Empire, which for hundreds of years, over a hundred years, had been the largest and most dominant Jewish community in the world, was simply shut down. Um, and, and, uh, and anyone who was able to got out. Uh, you have, like uh, we mentioned, the yeshivas in an earlier episode, and many of them had been in exile in Russia. And we have a whole story of these exiles coming back. How do they get back home? Some of them decide to stay in Russia, and they find it just impossible. That was the story with the Chavetz Chaim's yeshiva. In 1921, uh, he was, he's deep in Russia, he's in the Ukraine, in Snovsk. And 1921, it's already three and a half years after World War I had ended, close to four years after it had ended in, in, uh, in Russia, on the Eastern Front. And uh, Chavetz Chaim says, we can't live as Jews, as religious Jews, we can't sustain the yeshiva under communist rule. We have to get back to Radin. And they jumped the border back to Radin in a long and complicated saga and involved uh, all types of uh, protectia with governments and everything because of the prestige of the Chavetz Chaim. And they're able to finally get back. And he came back a broken man. And not only that, but with a heavy feeling of guilt. And for the rest of his life, he regretted coming back. Incredibly enough, he wanted to stay in Russia. And he said, we should have stayed in Russia because we abandoned the Jews in Russia behind the Iron Curtain. We abandoned them back there. We left with the yeshiva. We should have stayed and fought the Bolsheviks and fought the communists and tried to sustain religion and tried to sustain Yiddishkeit and have a yeshiva there. And maybe we should have gone underground and he felt very guilty about it. And he's something that he didn't stop talking about for the rest of his life, about how we have to care for Russian Jewry. And what did we do that we left, that we decided to go back to independent Poland? Radin ended up on the, on the good side of the border. It ended up in independent Poland uh, um, in the interwar period, and, uh, and was, you know, which gave religious freedom and religious autonomy. And they were able to have a yeshiva. There was no communism was illegal and. Poland in the interwar uh, time. So the Chavetz Chaim even made it uh, something, uh, it was called the Takona, Takona Sa Chavetz Chaim. He said that on the night of Yom Kippur, everyone should daven and say Tehillim and have in mind the Jews stuck behind the Iron Curtain in Russia. And many places in Eastern Europe, in Poland and Lithuania at the time, listened to the Chavetz Chaim and it became a custom on the night of Yom Kippur. And in fact, after World War II, when uh, 
after the Holocaust and the Jewish world had a rebirth in in the United States and in Israel, so there was still a Jewish community stuck behind the Iron Curtain in Russia. And in a couple of places that still remember the old Takana of the Chavetz Chaim still said to Hillam um, in, on the night of Yom Kippur. And one of those only places that did that was, uh, was the Mir Yeshiva. And even deep into the 1960s and 70s, uh, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz used to get up on Yom Kippur night in the Mir Yeshiva and say, Takanas HaChafetz Chaim, we're going to daven now for our brothers stuck behind the Iron Curtain in Russia and can't uh, practice a regular religious life. And they would say to him, and even after the fall of the communism, the Mir is a place of tradition and they find hard to change their customs. They still say to him on Yom Kippur night, but now it's not... Uh, for Russian Jewry anymore. So that's also in the wake of World War One. Other yeshivas, the, for instance, the yeshiva in Slutsk, which had not had, didn't have to go into exile altogether. They were far enough deep into Russia in the first place where they didn't even go into exile during World War One. But in the aftermath of World War One, because of communism, they had to jump the border and uh, they couldn't sustain the yeshiva there, and they set up shop on the other side of the border in independent Poland. In uh, in Kletsk, first uh, Rabbi Zalman Meltzer's son-in-law, Rabbi Aaron Cutler, did it, and then eventually Rabbi Zalman himself followed. And the same thing happened with the Navardic uh, Yeshiva Network. Uh, the the Alt of Navardic had already passed on in 1920, and his son-in-law Rabbi Ram Yafin tried to sustain Navardic uh, in um, in uh, in Russia for another few years, and it just simply was impossible, and he took. The entire network, they started, you know, going across the border in very daring and risky and dangerous operations. We're talking about young kids away from their families. They left their families behind, 13, 14, 15-year-old kids, part of the Novartic network, just because they wanted to stay in yeshiva and live a religious life. They left everything behind and did this very risky and dangerous border crossing, and they reset up the entire Novartic yeshiva network in Poland with the headquarters in Bialystok, and they had... Uh, other branches in in Riga and in in, in Mezrich, which is uh, not not the Mezrich in Ukraine, another one in Poland, and uh, another few branches, major brand Pinsk and other places um, across Poland, and uh, and uh, that's that's how Novartic ended up over. But that's that's the and that becomes a a major effect of World War One is uh, a upheaval of Jewish life that also has an effect. On on uh, on the on immigration to Israel, which was then Palestine. We go back to the Balfour Declaration, which was the other major event of that year, and uh, the Balfour Declaration gave a hope to Jews across the world that now there would be a a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, and the and the combination of the of, of factors of of Russia no longer being a ideal place for Jews, in addition to the fact that now it seemed that there's going to be a, a new Jewish national home any day, and the British are now in charge, and it's not the Ottoman Empire, and the British seem to be very forthcoming about this, and the first high commissioner to Palestine under the British mandate is a Jew named Herbert Samuel, and um, and people greet him as in, in Yerushalayim as if he's Mashiach ben Yosef, and they give him an aliyah in the Churvashul on Shabbos, and and they make a homi shaberach for him as, you know, this is it. The, 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 the end is in sight. So the third aliyah begins in the wake of uh, World War I. 
It's uh, in a very romantic way. It's considered the, the beginning of the first of the third Aliyah is a boat that leaves Odessa in 1919, when it carries some of the major figures who would dominate uh, um, is is Palestine, future state of Israel, but in the interwar period, Palestine cultural and intellectual and political life. Joseph Klausner, who eventually becomes one of the uh, founding fathers of Hebrew University and. Rachel, the poetess, who is one of the national poetesses of Israel, and now her picture graces the 20 shekel bill, and uh, other other uh, figures who are on this ship, and they kick off the third Aliyah, and many thousands of Jews, mainly from Russia, arrive in Palestine and set up new colonies in Kibbutzim and settle down in Tel Aviv, and Tel Aviv starts to grow, and they have high hopes that the British mandate will fulfill its promises that it made in both the Balfour Declaration and the San Remo Conference, which took place a couple of years later, which they promised to make some sort of partition and uh, and give the Jewish people a national home. So that brings us to the idea of what the Balfour Declaration was. We have the Zionist movement that already existed beforehand, and they're pushing and pressuring any government in the world that's willing to listen, but especially England, Chaim Weitzman, who was originally from uh, Russia, but he was a scientist, a chemist, and he lived in England for many years already, and he even contributed to the British war effort. He was a naturalized British citizen, and he contributed his uh, chemistry knowledge and uh, inventions, and you know, I don't know much about chemistry, but he did apparently a lot for the British Army and industrial war machine during World War One, and and there's a lot of uh, pressure on the British government from all angles uh, amongst the Jewish people to to uh, make the this declaration uh, that they would help set up a national Jewish home in Palestine. And Rav Cook actually was in England at the time, and he was called to testify before some sort of commission because the British assimilationist Jews, which many of them had very high positions in British society, some of them were even in the government itself, they were anti-Zionism because they were pro-British assimilation, assimilation into British society. Excuse me, and they did not did not want this this Jewish sentiment of Israel of Zionism of dual loyalty, and they uh, pressured, they lobbied the British government to not recognize the Zionist movement or the Jewish agency or any other um, any other. Uh, any other uh, um, body that that purposed to to uh, make Palestine a solution for the Jewish question. And in fact, so Rav Cook was called in to testify about it. And one of the the uh, the British non-Jewish uh, ministers said at the time, "Who should we listen to? This assimilated uh, prominent Jew in the government. I forgot his name. Who?" who doesn't follow the Jewish law, he eats on Yom Kippur, or should we follow what Rav Kook says about the land of Israel, who is a rabbi and a practicing Jew? It makes more sense to listen to what he has to say about the Jewish people's destiny and, uh, and what, they, what they want. So, they won, so they, the, um, for many reasons, the British government decides to issue the Balfour Declaration, and the way the form is, you know, they're about, they're on the threshold of 
conquering the area of Israel from the tottering and teetering uh, Ottoman Empire, which is in the process of being knocked out of the war, and eventually the, uh, the empire itself falls after the war, in Kemal Ataruk's uh, peaceful revolution, or somewhat peaceful revolution, and the way he transforms it into modern Turkey, which is also a whole story, and with uh, General Edmund Allenby almost uh, almost in Israel. So Lord Balfour, who's the foreign minister of the British government, he issues this letter to Lord Rothschild. Now, who's Lord Rothschild? He's seen by the British government as uh, as the representative of the Jewish people. He's the first, uh, or his father rather, was the first a Jew in the House of Lords, which was a major accomplishment. He got a title, obviously, Lord. It's uh, not not a simple thing at that time in England. And and uh, who else would represent the Jewish people? The Jewish people don't have a government. They don't have any structure of leadership uh, other than rabbinical leadership, which which in the eyes of the British government didn't hold for much. And here this is a prominent Jew, a rich Jew, very someone very prestigious in British society, and he is supportive of the Zionist ideal. He's cousins with the Rothschild who made the French Rothschild, Baron Edmund de Rothschild, who created the first colonies in Israel. So the Rothschild family definitely was involved, at, at least at some level. I don't know how active it was, especially uh, the, the Lord Rothschild, who's the recipient of the uh, Declaration. Um, it was a more of a subdued figure. And he, and, uh, he becomes the recipient of the Declaration. And there was a lot of wrangling about the language of the Declaration. What would it be? Would it be? It would be. And one of the key words that were changed at the last minute was, which watered down the, the Declaration, was that the British, His Majesty's government, sees with favor the establishment of a national home, Jewish home in Palestine. And the original language of the Declaration was, well, His Majesty's government sees with favor the establishment of the national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. That was a key difference, if it's a, the word a or the. And that's a, a major point of contention till today, as well as the fact that it added a whole clause about what's going to be with the locals in that are there, and uh, the rights of those locals, and what's going to happen with them, and where they're going to be citizens, and what type of home it's going to be. In other words, all the questions that plague Jewish society and Israel society till today were all hinted at in the original Balfour Declaration. So it's an amazing document. It's uh, quite short, but in there you see the seeds that are planted which still plague society till today. So we talk about the influence of World War I on, on, of course, the world, but also on the Jewish people and Jewish society. One of the places that it really expresses itself clearly is in the Balfour Declaration and the ramifications thereof. The third major event that happened in 1917, which we mentioned last episode, was the United States entry into the war. Now, the U.S. enters the war. They, they eventually send troops over, thousands of Jewish soldiers serve in the American army. We mentioned that also in an earlier podcast, an earlier part of this uh, series, but what another thing that happens because the America is part of the war now they're allies with uh, first with uh, for very for, with Russia for a very short time until Russia leaves the war, but they're against Germany, 
And what starts to happen is the American Jewish community galvanizes itself for the first time to help and to assist the their brethren on the other side of the ocean, mainly the Jews of the former Russian Empire. And that is is assisted. It starts already in the early parts of the war, but that has moved along much quicker because of of the American entry into the war. Now they're part of the European scene. Now they're not an isolationist. They're there. They're on the field. And, and, and this kind of awakens the American Jewish community. It's a very fundamental change in mindset, which uh, really, the, um, really reverberates till today, the way the American Jewish community sees itself as responsible in a philanthropic sense for helping disadvantaged uh, disadvantage Jewish communities around the world. It starts, the seeds of that are planted during World War I, because the American Jewish community was made up almost entirely of, of, uh, of immigrants. They had recently come, they had left the world behind. They had left that entire, the old country, the Altaheim, behind to start a new life. Many of them abandoned religion. Many of them had already abandoned religion beforehand, before they came, truth be told. But even the ones who didn't, they were in a new world, and the old world was left behind. And what starts to happen is that they see that the world that they left behind is part of their world, and it's they're part of one people, and the, the, those people back there are in trouble. And all kinds of things start to organize, and it's a fascinating thing. It's all a direct result of how they see their role. Because of World War I, because of the, the people are, because Jews in Russia are exiled, because people are being killed, because they're, 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 they're poverty, uh, that, 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 that takes place because of the revolution and the following civil war. And the, uh, several, several, several movements uh, arise in the American Jewish community. The first and most interesting one is the Landsmannschaft. And that, that's really at a grassroots level. That's not at a national or organizational level. The Landsmannschaft means that people who are Landslight, they are, they come from the same area in Europe. But originally these were kind of social fraternities to help the immigrants themselves, not the people back home. They start already before World War I as a way for the, the immigrants who are recent immigrants who don't know the language, don't know the culture. And here they can meet people from who come from a similar background to them, who come from a similar area in Europe. They could be based on a town or a district or something like that. And they they make connections, mainly business connections, but it's also cultural, it's also family. Almost all the time they made their shaduchim for their kids in these Landsmannschaft. And in the early generations, you only married someone who came from the same area of Europe that your parents came from. That's just how it went. And it was through these Landsmannschaft. And what happens during World War One is that these Landsmannschaft organize into stuck organizations, into charitable, uh, looking back at the towns, at the Landsmannschaft, at, at, at the places that they came from in Europe and say, hey, let's send money back. Some of them it was to directly to family members. Some of them it was to the overall Jewish community. And eventually what we see in the interwar period is a steady stream of support. And not only that, but even visits. Uh, people start to go back and visit. Let's see what we're supporting. This is the Alta Heim. This is this is uh, where we came from. And they go back and visit. And they say, "Yeah, we sponsored the new roof for the shul, and we 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 paid some money for for the the old age home." And you know, I remember as a child when I was twelve years old, I left with my parents from this place, and it's so nice to come back and meet the 
Jews from the old home. Not only that, but for, for historical record, this is an incredible thing, and this is something that exists with us till today. Some of these visits back took pictures and videos. And these pictures were with home cameras, and the videos were home videos. Very simple, very primitive, very crude. And they brought it back to show the other members of the Landsmannschaft. They brought it back to show the people who had donated money where their money had gone. And they brought it back to show their children who were becoming so Americanized and going to public school and becoming so distant from the world that they themselves had grown up in. They wanted to show their children, where do mom and dad come from? Where, what's the old world all about? And they were showing the people back in America a pulsing, vibrant, dynamic, living society in the interwar period. And that's what they were bringing back with these pictures and videos and stories. And a few years later, when that entire world got destroyed, the only living record, the only documentation, photographic and video, was of these Heimischeiden Landsmannschaft who brought back with them in the 20s and 30s. And those videos and pictures exist still today. They're in archives, they're in museums, and they're a powerful testimony of the life that existed at that time. So that's another uh, result for history. But what really starts also at the national level is, um, is major organizations, something that was called the Central Relief, and later on the Joint Distribution Committee, where the Central Relief eventually merged with the Joint, and the Joint becomes the greatest Jewish philanthropic organization of charity in, in history. It, it's, it's the amount that they were able to raise and support, and it starts in World War I. It's to help destitute Jews during that time uh, rehabilitate themselves in the aftermath of the war. Sometimes it's simply to save them from starvation or to help them with health care that was typhus spreading and later to put them back on their feet. They created jobs. They built new homes. When I bring the groups back, when we do tours in Eastern Europe, very often we'll talk about how in the, in, during World War I, in the immediate aftermath of World War I, you have projects that the joint initiates. You have, I remember recently we were in Panovic in Lithuania, and there was a, a whole story of how the joint built a new neighborhood, built houses and the streets, and there was a dedication ceremony and representatives of the joint were there. There's pictures of it, but it happens everywhere. It was in Warsaw, it was in all across Europe, and uh, the joint had a very good system of how they distributed their funds and how it was supposed to be a long-term investment. It wasn't just regular charity. It was also to, uh, you know, it was loans, it was businesses, buildings, it was investment, it was an incredible network, and they had representatives all over Europe who worked for them, very often locals who understood the needs. They didn't send Americans there, there were people, they worked with people in the field. The famous uh, historian of the Warsaw Ghetto, who founded the archive, Dr. Emanuel Ringelblum, he worked for the joint before the war and in the ghetto, truth be told which is also an interesting story because the joint continued to fund and send packages to Jews inside the ghettos until uh, the United States entered the war during World War II. But that's jumping ahead of our story. But the joint is a result of World War I as well. And that's uh, an important story. And really the joint is such a great story that it deserves a whole uh, episode or maybe even more than one uh, on its own. And their contribution to Jewish life and uh, what they what they were able to create and sustain, but that sense of identity and the sense of responsibility that the American Jewish community forms 
is it's a major turning point. The American Jewish community now sees themselves as part of the Jewish people in a larger sense. And not only do they see themselves as part of the Jewish people, but they see themselves as having a responsibility, that they are living a better life, they're successful, Everything's relative, obviously. No one was, uh, not everyone, or almost no one was multimillionaires in America. But even the ones who were struggling themselves, they still saw themselves as part of something much bigger and being responsible to the Jewish people at large, especially in places in the world where they, where the Jewish people were in trouble. So that's the three uh, aspects of uh, of the war. If we turn one month once more to Israel, to Eretz Yisrael and what was going on, and the effect of the war there. The Besides for all the politics of the Ottoman Empire leaving, the British Empire coming, the Third Aliyah, the Balfour Declaration, the Zionists taking charge, and there's a lot of shifts in power within the Israel-Jewish community, the Jewish agency, and the, uh, and the uh, Zionist movement was able to become the sole representatives eventually of the Jewish community in Palestine, which angered the old Yishuv, and that caused a lot of friction, um, vis-a-vis the British government. But aside from all that, we're talking about the direct results of World War One, the way the old Yishuv in, uh, in Eretz Yisrael was supported, we spoke about this in another, uh, another episode, was the Chalukah system. The Chalukah system depended on a constant flow of funds from Eastern Europe to Israel. Now, during wartime, that whole entire system falls apart. It doesn't exist anymore. The, 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 the funds are cut off. Um, and, and because it's wartime, they can't, they can't transfer money. There's no travel. Um, for example, just a, as an example of that, the first Bustaner Rebbe, Rapinchas Horovitz, was a Lulliver Chassid living in Yerushalayim. And he, um, is sent on a mission as a representative of the old Yishuv, excuse me, in a in a dispute again over funding, which was common in those days, to represent them in uh, in Poland, and on his way, World War One breaks out. Now, earlier on, his uncle, the Lelov Rebbe Reb David Biederman, not the original Reb David of Lelov, but his great grandson, who was named after him. He had told Reb Pinchas, the younger Reb Pinchas, that he should go to America and bring Chasidus, bring Tyra, bring Yiddishkeit to America. And Reb Pinchas Horowitz, who lived in Meish Aram, he said, what? I'm going to leave this holy place and go to the place, America, which is full of Chil Shabbos, and no one, everyone leaves their Yiddishkeit behind. And uh, how am I going to do that? Well, his uncle was, was uh, smarter than him. And eventually he gets stuck in Europe during world, the beginning of the war. He can't go back to Israel. And he's also an enemy alien because he's stuck in Austria when he's a Russian citizen. Or maybe he was stuck in Russia when he was an Austrian citizen. I remember one way or the other, he was a, he was a problem. And he needed to get out before it was dangerous. And he took the last ship out, which was heading to the United States, and he said, oh, my uncle got me to go. And he ends up in the United States and sets up his court in Boston and becomes the first Boston Rebbe. So there you go. He, he's, he's, uh, that, that's a cutting off from Israel. He was cut off from his family. He was there alone for a bunch of years till after the war when things settled down. He's able to bring over his family to America. So they have, you have this 
complete cutting off of, uh, of the old Yishev, of the Chalukah. So what happens? You have to understand that people relied on it, and there was, they didn't have, there was no jobs. They couldn't say, okay, Chalukah didn't come, I'm going to become an accountant. It didn't work like that, and people actually starved. People starved to death. Disease spreads, and it was a horrible, horrible time, uh, really a disastrous time. There was a blo- naval blockade. They couldn't bring in produce. Um, some of them were considered foreign enemies because they were Russian citizens, so even it made things even worse. And, uh, and the old Yishev was decimated, suffered, and that had long-term effects for the old Yishev because very, what happened was a lot of the youth in the old Yishev saw that there was no hope for this community. There was no hope by staying in the old Yishev. And in the wake of World War I, a lot of young youth from the old Yishev go out to join the new Im- immigrants of the third Aliyah and the Kibbutzim. And, uh, and most, uh, most of the old Yishev, I would say the majority of it, eventually falls apart and lose uh, most of their youth. Uh, so that that's another aspect of the effect of World War One. That pretty much uh, covers uh, how the Jewish community fares. There's some bright spots: uh, the uh, galvanizing the American Jewish community, the uh, result of 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 Eretz Yisrael under the British mandate, but a lot of dark times, especially in Russia, other places in Europe. But ultimately, what the Jewish people emerged from World War I would be eventually, it took a few years, but eventually get stronger. The yeshiva movement, which had been almost destroyed by the war, for instance, grew in such proportions that it had never been before. The, uh, the, the yeshiva, the Litvish yeshivas, um, reached a golden age, both in size and in quality during the interwar period. Most of the yeshivas are in Poland. Russia's cut off. Very few yeshivas in independent Lithuania. Most of the Lithuanian yeshivas are in, in Poland. And um, there are Hasidish yeshivas. The Radomsk yeshivas grow during that time. The Babav yeshivas. So just using the yeshivas as a barometer. So for the rebirth, so they seem to have recovered from the ravages of World War I. And very often it was the case with other Jewish communities as well, wherever they resettled after the unsettling times of World War I. So this was a great series. I'm happy we did it together. And we'll hopefully have another new series soon. So this will call the uh, final call and the end to the series of World War I and the Jews, which I hope you all enjoyed. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course, tours and trips to all the areas, not only of where World War I was, but of any stop in Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on, at, on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.